welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn more about high-yield ID topics. I will first welcome our co-host today, Dr. Nathan Nolan. Nathan is a recent ID fellowship grad from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and currently is an instructor and a med-ed fellow. He has a special focus on marginalized populations, including patients who use drugs and patients who are unhoused. Our guest discussant today is Dr. Ragini Jawa. Dr. Jawa is a clinical instructor at Boston University School of Medicine, where she practices infectious disease and addiction medicine. Her research is focused on the intersection of ID and addiction with a focus on harm reduction practices as a mechanism to reduce the rate of infectious complications occurring in people who inject drugs. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you. Hi. Um, so before Nathan takes us to the case, we like to ask as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, if you could share a little piece of culture or something that brings you happiness. Nathan, would you like to go first? Sure. I don't know if this fits the normal definition that you have, but, uh, I recently was on vacation in Puerto Rico and I got the opportunity to go to a bioluminescent bay, which is where they have the little plankton that light up. And it was one of the coolest experiences and it was just so beautiful. And so I would say if you ever get an opportunity to go to Puerto Rico and do that, uh, you definitely should. That sounds very exciting. I am really jealous and I need to make a trip to Puerto Rico. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a photography junkie and I'm I'm like waiting for something beautiful to just show up (laughs) that I can photograph. (laughs) New England winters are very dreary. Um, what brings me joy? I mean, right now, what brings me joy is TLC's 90 day fiance. And <laughs> I, I will tell you, I am such a reality show junkie. There is nothing more relaxing than coming home from a long day of ID consults or HIV clinic or whatever. And then just being like, I'm going to watch 90 day fiance reruns. <laughs> um, it's fantastic. If you haven't enjoyed an episode, I highly encourage you do that. This is not sponsored by TLC, but, <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> it's a really great show. It's sometimes mind numbing, but, uh, yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. Sometimes that's what you need though. A little bit of mind numbing at the end of the day, or at least I do. <laughs> awesome. Well, those are both great. Um, so today's consult question is about a 35 year old male who's admitted with fevers. So I will throw it over to Nathan. Okay. So we have a 35-year-old male patient who has a history of substance use disorder, and specifically he uses injection opioids, and he's admitted for fevers that have been ongoing for two weeks. He has a history of hepatitis C that has been untreated. He uses fentanyl by way of injection and uses daily. He tries to use new needles when able, but sometimes has to reuse his needles if he's not able to get new ones. He does not routinely clean his skin before injection. He lives within the city, but is unstably housed. He describes his situation as couch surfing. He has history of skin infections in the past, but has never had to be admitted to the hospital for any serious uh, injection site related injury or infection. For the last two weeks, he has been noting night sweats and fevers. He also reports low energy, low appetite, and progressive difficulty with his breathing. 
Today, he had some more trouble with his breathing and decided to present to the emergency room. He has no prior medical history, uh, no history of any major surgeries. On the initial evaluation in the ER, he looks moderately ill, and he's found to have a fever of 38.1 degrees Celsius. His heart rate is 111, and his respiratory rate is 20. He was breathing comfortably on room air, and his blood pressure was stable. His heart exam was significant for a systolic murmur, heard best at the right sternal border. He has lower extremity edema, which is 2+. plus. He has some faint crackles in the left lung base. And then his initial lab work comes back as a CBC with a white count of 18,000, 82% neutrophils with 3% bands. His hemoglobin is 13. His platelets are 180,000. And a metabolic panel demonstrates a sodium of 135, potassium of 4, chloride 101, bicarb 24, BUN 37, and creatinine of 2 with an unknown baseline. His glucose is 98, AST is 93, ALT 92. On chest x-ray, he has uh, a peripheral opacity in the left lower lung field concerning for an infectious process. So blood cultures are obtained, and he's admitted to the hospital. And so you're asked to see him as a consult. Do you have any initial thoughts about this case or, or how you might approach a patient that you're seeing that may have injection-related infection? Yeah, you know, thanks for this case, Nathan. This clearly is a patient who is quite unwell, um, he's young. He's coming in with symptoms for two weeks with SIRS and perhaps a pulmonary process. And I think that the point of this podcast is really to not only sort of dispel myths about people with substance use disorders, but but I think our differential as ID docs and medical docs is pretty much the same as any other patient. This patient has some sort of infection. And um, at, I don't. I think that when I approach this sort of patient initially, uh, my differential diagnosis is is the same as a patient without addiction. It's a homeless patient with two week long febrile illness, SIRS, leukocytosis with bandemia, AKI, transaminitis, and then all of these physical exam findings that are really concerning for some sort of pulmonary cardiac process, so new systolic murmur, new lower extremity edema, some sort of left lower lobe infiltrate. So I'm thinking, oh gosh, patient probably has a bacterial process, pneumonia, maybe a cardiac process. Because of their homelessness as an ID doc, I'd always be worried about something a little bit more insidious like TB. Um and so those would be the things highest on my differential that I hope, like most of our medical colleagues, would be keeping um, highest on their differential. But your question, Nathan, was really about, well, how do you sort of approach the fact that this patient is is unlike others and has an additional past medical history of uh, injection drug use, specifically opioid use? Um and I do think that that adds a new flair to our differential diagnosis. And, and and that really means that our differential diagnosis should have the typical, you know, pneumonia, cardiac process, TB. But we should have a higher index of suspicion for other um, hematogenous introduced bacterial infections or fungal processes. So this could be like endocarditis, osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, a serious skin and soft tissue infection that maybe the patient's not necessarily telling you about that could be concurrent with the thing that is causing him to have shortness of breath. Um, and then 
the other things on the differential that probably don't fit with this illness script could be like an acute viral illness. Um, so yeah, differential is pretty much the same, but when you add injection drug use into the past medical history, it does make the index of suspicion higher for other hematogenously introduced bacterial and fungal processes. Wow, that was uh, a really excellent discussion. Thank you for that. I can give you a little bit more of the case if you're ready. Sure. So the patient was admitted to the internal medicine service, and he was empirically started on ceftriaxone and vancomycin. Uh, shortly after admission, he becomes diaphoretic with severe abdominal cramps, nausea, and diarrhea. His blood pressure increases to 167 over 101, and his heart rate is now 120. He appears agitated. So I guess my question at this point is, you talked about how there may be some other levels or other components of this presentation. And I would say that my concern as, as a physician would be that this patient might have a secondary process on top of whatever their infection is that's ongoing. And, you know, this could be related to his opioid use disorder. How do you go about uh, addressing opioid withdrawal in patients like this who may be admitted with uh, unrelated processes? So I think as any medical or specifically for infectious disease providers, it's important for us to think in our differential diagnosis not about just like the typical complications of drug use, but also the mimics of sepsis and sepsis-like phenomena. So opiate withdrawal and and many drug withdrawal syndromes oftentimes can be mimicking sepsis and autonomic dysregulation. And so for any patient with substance use disorder, I always like to ask not only what signs and symptoms that they're presenting with, but also when is the last time they used? Um, and what that means is what are they using? And are they on any medications for their drug use? Um, that could impact their risk of experiencing opiate withdrawal uh, if it's not acutely managed in the hospital setting. Uh, and yes, we go to medical school and get our bachelor's and get master's and, you know, get all these special degrees. But for patients with addiction, when they're using drugs, they are the experts of their own bodies and they understand the the keen pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the specific types of drugs that they're using. So the questions that I like to ask my patients is, do you have any symptoms of withdrawal at this moment from whatever substance that they're using, whether it be opiates, whether it be stimulants, whether it be alcohol, benzodiazepines? The symptoms of opiate withdrawal are sort of at the same timeline that you told me about, Nathan, uh, that they start anywhere from 24 to 36 hours since the last time they used. And again, that can vary depending on the potency and the type of opioid that patients are using. So if their body is dependent on sort of longer-acting opioid agonists, um, their withdrawal symptoms may not come for a little bit of time. But if they're using things like fentanyl, which is very much um, infiltrated into the drug supply, at least it has in New England, Patients start experiencing withdrawal symptoms very quickly, sometimes even before the 24-hour period. So they might start feeling sick in the emergency room bay. And these symptoms can be very similar to sepsis, right? They can be diaphoresis, dilated pupils, rhinorrhea, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, nausea, muscle spasms, anxiety, pyloerection. And 
in the hospital, at least in my hospital, uh, we have these inbuilt like cow scores, uh, which is an opiate withdrawal scale that our nursing colleagues can sort of score patients. But depending on the type of hospital or clinic system you might be in, you can always Google it and find out like what are the typical signs and symptoms for opiate withdrawal. And you can score your patient yourself and then say, gosh, if they're scoring like an eight or a 10 on the cow scale, then that probably means that they're experiencing withdrawal symptoms. And that might be confounding or contributing to the worsened hemodynamics that the patient is currently going through. So that's how I address the whole, is my patient going through opiate withdrawal at this moment? Now, I will make this note that the first question should not just be, are you going through opiate withdrawals and what's your cow scale? The next question needs to be, well, what the heck am I going to do about it? And you have so many tools to actually manage patients with opiate withdrawal. But but your patient needs to be engaged and you need to have a conversation with your patient on how they think would be best to manage their withdrawal symptoms to help them feel comfortable and sort of take the opiate withdrawal symptoms off of their plate when they're already feeling sick from a bacterial or fungal process. And I think we as clinical providers could do better in this realm. I think sometimes we we know like, oh, I'm going to ask my patient, are they having withdrawals? I know how to do the score. And then we sort of feel like, oh, gosh, I don't know what to do next. Am I enabling the patient? Am I making their drug use worse? Am I going to make their hemodynamics worse? And the answer is no. Drugs have very typical pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Patients withdraw, and us as medical providers have a responsibility to manage the withdrawal in whatever setting, in the outpatient setting or in the hospital. What I would advise in this stage is once you've identified patient is withdrawing, is to work with the patient, ask them what their goals are for management of the opiate withdrawal symptoms, short and long term, and use that hospital stay as a reachable moment. Um, And there's a lot of literature on what reachable moments are, but it's really your opportunity to reach out to the patient and say, hey, I'm here to treat your infection. I'm here to make you feel better. And I also don't want you to withdraw. And this sort of fosters a very respectful, trusting relationship. And the go-to medications that you have in your armamentarium as a clinical provider are not only like the stigmatized medications like methadone and buprenorphine that sometimes uh, clinicians feel uncomfortable prescribing, but it's stuff that we like give all the time, like NSAIDs, like Tylenol, like hydroxyzine, clonidine, bental. We can prescribe all of these medications to help our patients feel more comfortable. You can also prescribe your patients short or long-acting opioids and other medications for opiate use disorder, whether they be methadone and buprenorphine, both that are opioid agonists or partial opioid agonists. I just want to make sure we take a quick pause here for you to tell us just a little bit about how to gather a history around IV drug use, because I think there are a lot of listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with what to ask. And so specifically, what might be the types of questions you ask and how those are useful to you as you think about your patient? Oh, of course. So ID docs love histories. And (laughs) I love this. If I'm taking care of a patient with injection drug use, it is my responsibility to not only get a good social history, but specifically an injection drug use history. And so I like to ask nitty gritties, what drugs are my patients injecting or using 
because it doesn't necessarily mean that my patients are going to be using an injection route of drugs, right? They might be inhaling, they might be smoking, they might be taking oral medications or other routes of administration. And I like to ask what drugs they're using. So is it opioids only or is it opioids in stimulants? And if it's stimulants, then which stimulants? Like, is it cocaine, crack, methamphetamine? Um, And the reason why is because not only will that guide you on their withdrawal syndrome, that will also potentially guide you on some of the risk-taking behaviors they're engaging in. And it will probably guide you on some of the injection drug use related complications they might be facing. So for instance, things like methamphetamine, so stimulants are vasoconstricting. And so those patients often tend to have a lot of ischemic uh, skin infections. Um, Or if patients are engaging in methamphetamine with other uh, substances, that's been associated with Uh, riskier injection drug use and sexual risk behaviors. So the questions keep going. Um, The questions you can ask are, when was the last time they used? How are the patients injecting? Um, And how frequently are your patients injecting? And you might be surprised. Some patients will say, I live at home. I inject in the bathroom maybe once a day. Um, And that might not be the same type of patient who might be unstably housed who might say, I have no place to inject. I'm injecting 10, 15 times a day. Um, And then the obvious next questions would be, well, where are you getting your injection drug preparation equipment from? Is it the local needle exchange? Is it the local pharmacy? Are you reusing your injection drug preparation equipment? Or are you stealing it? Or are you taking it from one of your family members? Again, as an ID doc, All of those risk behaviors have implications for the type of infectious complications this patient might be having that I need to address, maybe not in that moment, but maybe down the stream in the hospital stay. The other questions I ask, it'll be, you know, are you cooking your drugs? That means are you using a flame to dissolve your drugs? And where are you getting your solvents from? Is it tap water? Is it... Uh, toilet water? Is it spit? Is it snow um, balls? And you'd be really surprised because all of those sources of uh, solvents that our patients could be using may have different bacterial and fungal contaminants within them that could cause downstream complications. And so the last few questions I like to ask is number of times they've reused or shared their injection equipment. Um, If they have engaged in Uh, cotton shots. And for those of you who are less familiar with cotton shots, cottons are typically filters that are used to take out any sort of uh, uh, contaminants in drug products as you're sucking up the drug from your cooker, which is the receptacle in which your patient is probably cooking drugs. And often cotton shots are the drug that's residually left behind that patients may or may not save or sell in order to, you know, uh, have it for a rainy day, that when you're not able to um, resource a drug reliably, you still have something to prevent you from getting sick um, because you know that that cotton is probably loaded with a little bit of drug products in it. In my mind, if a patient is engaging in cotton shots, that's like a real red flag that this patient is really struggling. We need to engage them. They're at high risk of bacterial and fungal complications. Um, And the other stuff is like, 
you know, we ask about past medical history. So injection past medical history is going to be, are they, you know, having prior skin and soft tissue infections? Have they had serious infection, infectious complications like abscesses or endocarditis or osteomyelitis? Have they had a prior immunocompromising infection like HIV? Um, have they ever been on PrEP? And then how are they supporting their habit? Our patient is unstably housed. It seems like this person's really struggling maintaining their, you know, usual uh, ability to do their day to day. How are they, ma- you know, supporting their habit? Is it through um, selling drugs or peddling, or is it through transactional sex or other risky behaviors? All of these questions should be in our background for talking to patients with injection drug use um, and addiction and. And trust me, while this hasn't been studied formally, I do think that if a clinician can have an open, honest conversation with a patient who's struggling with injection drug use and ask them all of these history uh, uh, questions, your patient will very naturally open up. You might not even have to prompt these questions. They will just tell you. Because it might be one of the first times that that patient has heard an empathetic provider actually ask them what they're doing and how they're feeling. Um, it stinks, guys. Like there's so much stigma around patients with addiction. And and while I'd love to think that the medical environment is immune to that stigma, I think we're getting there, but it's taking some time and it's going to need some champions like you all to sort of break those barriers um, and, and help this patient population feel more that the hospital is a, a welcoming environment. Yeah, thanks so much. I really wanted to make sure we outline those questions explicitly. And I totally agree with you. I think it makes a huge difference when you have these conversations with our patients uh, to try to develop that trust. But also, I think, to make sure we're continuing to model that to others around you in the healthcare setting. So I do a lot of harm reduction research uh, among learners. And uh, if you teach trainees on having safe injection practice discussions with patients, it actually is shown to be associated with their increased compassion satisfaction towards caring for this patient population. And that has implications, right? Like if we feel compassionate to someone suffering, we also provide them better care. And I think that oftentimes like these questions are not taught in medical school. And so we can only model it through these podcasts and model it through champions, local champions who are taking care of these patients. Um, But I really do hope that there is a culture change over the years. Our patients are coming in more and more with infectious complications. They're more and more in your hospital wards as you're being seen by hospitalists, seen by internal medicine, med peds trainees, family medicine, surgical trainees, um, and and this dialogue needs to be part of our conversation guide. So that was a really great explanation. And uh, I appreciate you talking about also the use of, um, of short-acting opioids in uh, treating withdrawal. You know, oftentimes we have patients that come in that, uh, like you said, trying to meet a patient where they're at, they may not be ready to be on some sort of agonist therapy, or maybe they have a procedure that's going to happen and they may need um, analgesia more than what might be provided with something like buprenorphine. So uh, we'll move on with the case. Um, The patient is started on buprenorphine. This improves his symptoms of withdrawal. 
He is also provided with symptomatic relief, including loperamide and clonidine. On hospital day two, his blood cultures turned positive for gram-positive coccyon chains. Uh, repeat blood cultures are obtained, and a transthoracic echocardiogram is performed. This demonstrates a three centimeter vegetation on the tricuspid valve. On hospital day three, the organism is identified as streptococcus mitis. And so given this information, is there anything you would do different in regards to this patient's management? So Nathan, I'm going to probe you and say, what do you mean by the patient's management? Do you mean the antibiotic management, the medication for opiate use disorder management, or harm reduction management? Well, potentially all of the above, but I think in this moment you have new microbiologic data, so probably would be the management of the actual infection itself. Totally. So for a strep mitis species, that is typically a a very sensitive pathogen. I think that narrowing the antibiotics is probably most appropriate. In this case, typically strep mitis is, is I, I don't remember if you said, is it's penicillin susceptible. So I would, I would narrow down to the, the most susceptible type of agent um, to simplify the patient's antibiotic regimen. In terms of the medications for opiate use disorder management, it seems like the patient was started on buprenorphine for his opioid withdrawal. And I think that this would be an appropriate time to check in on the patient and see how are those symptoms going? Is the patient's withdrawal being managed appropriately on the current dose and or does that dose need to be titrated further? Typically, buprenorphine is dosed either once, twice, or thrice a day. Um, And the questions to ask your patient for any medication for opiate disorder, there's actually three goals. Um, this goes for methadone and for buprenorphine. The first goal uh, of titrating a medication um, like an MOUD is is managing the opiate withdrawal sy- symptoms. The second goal is to prevent cravings. And the third goal is if you were to use drugs on top, that they'll be like a blocking dose, that you wouldn't actually be able to have uh, an intoxication syndrome um, if you were to use. And so that's really the goals that you should be trying to achieve, even in the hospital stay, for a patient who is newly started on a medication for opioid disorder. So I think the management here would be checking in on the patient, seeing how they're doing on their withdrawal symptoms. If those are managed, you're a rock star, then see if you're you're being able to do, you know, the goal number two or three. Are there cravings managed? Because being in the hospital is no joke. It stinks. And especially for patients who are struggling with a substance use disorder and unstable housing, being in a closed hospital, there is nothing worse. It feels like jail. And so patients will often have cravings as they're feeling better and better, right? Um, And they might want to go out and use and treat themselves. And so your role would be to check in to see if we need to do dose titration. And then as an ID doc, the pathogens that are isolated are the biggest hint for me to to figure out what the risk behavior was for a patient who's using drugs. one of my favorite patients had Serratia uh, marcessens uh, isolated in her 
blood cultures who had a history of injection drug use. And for those of you who are less familiar with this type of pathogen, it's a a pink-tinged bacteria that typically colonizes the outside of like your faucets um, and your sinks. And so when I asked her, I was like, so how are you injecting? And she's like, hey, Dr. Jawa, you know, I uh, inject tap water because I think that's the safest. And that's where this pathogen was introduced. And so similarly, this patient is coming in with strep mitis, which is typically an oral flora. And so that is a hint to me to say, you know, you have bacteria in your blood. By the way, the bacteria that was found in your blood is actually a mouth bacteria. Talk to me again about how you're injecting. And and they you might realize that the patient will say, hey, you know what? I am licking my needles before I inject because I want to make sure that the potency of the drug that I'm injecting is good. Or I lick the needle after I inject to make sure that I don't waste the drug. Or I lick my skin after I'm bleeding from my injection site so as to help with the coagulation of the blood. Or I'm using spit as my solvent when I'm mixing my drugs. Or I'm sharing my injection drug preparation equipment. That, so the pathogen is key. And engaging your patient in a conversation, once you've identified the pathogen, it like blows their world. I kid you not, like it really helps um, patients identify like, oh, I have an infection. I think now I understand where it came from. And this also then leads to the next step of you partnering with the patient to identify realistic risk mitigation strategies. So let's say the patient says, I'm licking my skin before or after I inject. Maybe you can talk to them about, well, maybe we can think about other ways, like maybe using an alcohol swab or soap water or... um, If the patient is saying, I'm having to resort to using spit to solubilize my drug, saying like, hey, let me help you find the local needle exchanges, or maybe I can prescribe you those ampules of saline or water at the time of discharge. Again, it's it's giving um, tools for your patient to keep them safe. And in HIV, we do this all the time. Um, and, and frankly, in anything, we do this all the time. Like for our diabetic patients, we teach our patients how to inject insulin. We also give them glucose tablets along with the insulin to keep themselves safe. And so when you have a patient with injection drug use, you've isolated the pathogen. You are empowered to say, okay, let's come up with a strategy that works for you. And like, here are the tools. And that tool might be cleaning your skin. That tool might be finding the local needle exchange. That tool might be something else, like cooking your works for like two minutes so that you can try to sterilize the bacteria that's in your cooker. Um, So yeah. Uh, The other thing is, is strep mitis is in the mouth. And so from a physical exam perspective, you should always examine your patient's mouth. Oftentimes, patients may have non-optimal dental hygiene, and 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 you can have odontogenic infections that can lead to hematogenous infections. And so, you know, they might have a broken tooth or whatever that could have led to the this bacteria going into their bloodstream. So, yeah. I hope by my conversation about this, your role is more than just like, here's how I narrow the antibiotics based off of what microbiology told me. I empower you to say, 
Not only can I do that, but I can manage their MOUD, their medication for opiate use disorder. I can check on them for their cravings, and I can partner them with how to reduce their risk um, of injection drug use. Excellent. All right. So that was a really uh, great and robust discussion on uh, harm reduction and how we might uh, further tailor our care for this patient. Thank you for that. Um, ultimately, the patient is improving on antibiotics and he did have a consultation with cardiothoracic surgery, but they didn't feel like he needed any kind of surgical intervention. Susceptibility testing revealed that the strep mitis was highly susceptible to penicillin. A pick line was placed, and he has started on ceftriaxone with a plan for a four-week course of IV antibiotics. His medical team uh, deems that he is not a candidate for outpatient parenteral antibiotic therapy. So I guess in this moment, my question for you, Dr. Jawa, is when you're seeing patients in the hospital for complications of their injection drug use, um, you essentially kind of have a captive audience or, or patients that are there for what you were referring to as a reachable moment. Um, what other screenings or interventions would you do while they're in the hospital? For example, would you screen them for STIs or uh, bloodborne viruses? And then I guess on top of that, um, you know, this is a patient that his team has said, you know, he uh, is seemingly not safe to discharge with a PICC line or on outpatient IV antibiotics. Uh, what do you do in that circumstance? Do you preemptively make a plan for that patient in case they need to discharge uh, prematurely? Um, excellent questions. So, yes, you have a captive audience. When does this ever happen? Um, so, yes, to all of the above, you can do anything and everything. And this is also the opportunity for you to sort of change the dynamic of the experience that the patient has had traditionally in the health facility, right? So these patients are often very stigmatized against the health systems. They don't even want to come to see you. They will come only when they are so sick that they probably can't function. And so you can provide the clinical interventions um, like STI screenings and um, discussions about pre-exposure prophylaxis and initiation of pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis, depending on if your patient is engaging in injection drug use, uh, engaging in sharing of injection drug use preparation equipment, um, or engaging in transactional sex, which many of your patients may disclose to you that they are. And again, Pre-exposure prophylaxis is a an indication for PrEP. So you can do all of those things. So what I like to do is I screen for the hepatitis, I screen for STIs, I vaccinate my patients for the, hep the hepatitis B if they need boosters, also uh, vaccinate them for COVID if they haven't already received that, discuss with them about pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis. For our female patients who are injecting drugs, oftentimes who are of of childbearing age, you can also discuss with them contraception and initiate them on contraception, whether it be some sort of, uh, uh, you know, implanon or whatever. Um, and all of those interventions you can do in the hospital. Uh, and the other critical thing you can do uh, while your patient is in the hospital is see what are their outpatient linkages. So do they have a primary care doctor? Do they have any social worker who can help them with, like, 
uh, paperwork or housing, because oftentimes this patient is probably unlinked to medical care. And this is your opportunity to sort of wrap your arms around them and say, how can I help you? Um, and then in terms of the ID questions is, can we come up with a preemptive plan? Well, I challenge us to say, can we come up with a preemptive ID and an addiction plan? So for a patient on buprenorphine, um, who might be, uh, you know, not necessarily linked to an outpatient buprenorphine clinic, then the preemptive plan to leave to, you know, your night float residence is if this patient was to leave um, as a patient-directed discharge for whatever reason, then from an addiction standpoint, they should be getting a bridge script of buprenorphine, so several days of buprenorphine uh, prescription so that they don't go into withdrawal. They need an appointment the next day um, to some sort of bridge clinic or primary care provider or urgent care that can continue prescribing them this medication. And then in terms of the ID plan, um, well, this patient has a really sensitive pathogen, strep mitis, which is penicillin susceptible. There are probably many other agents that you can give orally um, that will have as good uh, sort of penetration into tissue that you could give um for the duration of their four-week course. that You know, the data for uh, partial oral antibiotics, we can sort of discuss later. Um, but, but I think that um, when you have a captive audience, you have a reachable moment to change the dialogue on how we provide care for this patient population, to engage them into primary care and addiction care as an outpatient, and and to have contingencies on if there was to be a patient-directed discharge, contact the ID fellow, and then they can provide you whatever the the institutional uh, oral equivalent antibiotic would be for this patient. All right. So our patient's now uh, about two weeks into treatment. Um, he's doing well on his uh, dosing of buprenorphine. He's not having any withdrawal symptoms. He feels pretty well. In fact, he's been uh, getting a little bit stir crazy, doing laps around the, the hospital ward. And he's asking you if he can leave the hospital and not have to stay there for another two weeks to finish out his four-week course. And, you know, this is something I think as ID physicians, we're faced with a lot where we're trying to make uh, decisions, um, both what's best for our patient, but then taking our patient's values and their thoughts into consideration. And so I was wondering in, in this type of situation, how do you have that conversation with patients about whether or not they're eligible for, for IV antibiotics in the outpatient setting or whether or not they might be good candidates for, for partial oral antibiotic treatment if they don't feel that they can stay in the hospital? So this is such an important question, and there is so much variability on eligibility of out, so outpatient parenteral antibiotic treatment via a PIC line, uh, particularly among patients who inject drugs. And uh, I've written about this with some of my colleagues in um, as a commentary, just sort of looking at data on what are the previously cited barriers to home-based OPAT for people who use drugs. And the typical barriers for home-based OPAT, it could be anything like unstable housing, lack of transportation, not living with a responsible adult who can support infusions, this whole, this uh, idea that patients who use drugs are at risk for misusing their PICC line um, and 
you know, having access to the PIC line and uh, this risk of litigation if the patient misuses the PIC line and gets a PIC line associated infection or some other adverse uh, clinical symptom. Um, And then this, the other sided barriers are this need for mental health and substance use disorder treatment, lack of data on outcomes for OPAT with people who inject drugs, and inadequate Medicare coverage for non-homebound patients and and this lack of existing care models. So you can imagine that in the United States, why isn't it standard of care for patients who use drugs to be discharged um, on OPAT after the two-week mark, which is typically what we do for every other patient who is not doesn't have like the stamp of patient who uses drugs. Um, it's because of a lot of systemic um, variability and some stigma and some lack of infrastructural support that exists for patients. So while some institutions have figured out avenues to support patients who use drugs with PICC lines um, in their homes, others have not. So am I surprised that the initial team deemed this patient not eligible? No. Um, but do I? would I challenge them? Absolutely. Uh, because I think, as with any other medical syndrome that is, someone is uh, admitted for, um, the antibiotic, outpatient antibiotic and addiction plans need to be dictated by the patient's clinical stability for both the ID realm and the addiction realm, and really their needs, right? Like, it is a shared decision-making venture. We can't be uh, paternalistic about this that, oh, this patient has an addiction and I can't discharge them on a pick line because I could get sued. No, the patient has a cat or whatever that they need to take care of. They have work. They have kids. They have the same responsibilities that other patients with the uh, past medical history of substance use disorder also have. Um, and and we can't, like, insert our morals Uh, or our own stigma into the clinical decisions that we make for this patient population. So I think that your question is, what what kind of plan should we make? Well, it should really be dictated by the patient and their clinical ID and addiction optimization. My colleague, Dr. Aisha Appa, who's also an infectious disease and addiction medicine provider um, from UCSF, she summarized uh, in the New England Journal curbside consult a a fair amount of evidence about this, that while patients who use drugs face a lot of discrimination um, on being discharged with PICC lines, um, again, I am an OPAT provider uh, for people who use drugs. I manage numerous patients with IV antibiotics, and I don't see any contraindication to discharge. Um, And this is not just because Dr. Jawa said so. This is actually evidence-based. Dr. Laura Marks has shown that patients who are hospitalized with serious um, invasive bacterial infections who had patient-directed discharges who are on PO antibiotics had high antibiotic adherence rates. So if they took their PO antibiotics, don't you think they'd also take their IV antibiotics? Like no one wins if if you don't take your medication. And and so that's really getting to the point that um, it's not that patients with substance use disorder are uh, non-adherent. They also want to get better. And so uh, they might just need a little bit more multidisciplinary outpatient support. And then in terms of the literature that's shown about 
pick line complications among people who use drugs. While that's been mixed and the data is like a lot of retrospective studies and um, and while some studies have shown increased vascular complications in this group of uh, patients, there's really no significant difference between secondary line infections for patients who use drugs who get home-based OPAT versus in-hospital OPAT. What, what all of these you know, studies really show us is that while there's a lot of variability on pick line eligibility, oftentimes it's dictated by what the institutional norm is. And sometimes the institutional norm is no, that we will not. Um, but as medical providers who are providing evidence-based practices, I urge you to look at the most recent literature to guide some of your management and engage your patients in shared decision-making um, because there really isn't any negative outcome. It does require a fair amount of case management, VNA buy-in, um, and out- outpatient sort of support for this patient population, but your clinical decisions for this patient's outpatient management should not be dictated by anything except for, is this person optimized from their addiction? Yes or no. Is this person optimized for their infection? Yes or no. And then do they have like a stable way to get their IV antibiotics? Um, And that's it. And, you know, we can think about like tamper proof uh, pick lines and all of these other sort of innovative ways to, um, prevent patients from utilizing their picks. But when you look at some of the qualitative literature that asks patients who use drugs on whether or not they inject in their picks, I mean, these patients are expert phlebotomists. They would not inject into their pick, and they say that. They recognize the complications of injecting through their pick are quite large. Um, They have other ways of injecting if they really needed to inject. And if a patient wants to use, they will. Um, And I certainly have had a fair amount of patients who have triggers, they have cravings, they use. Um, They perhaps use from a different route. They might use from a different arm. But that really um, is your role to say, okay, that still should not be a contraindication for them to get outpatient IV antibiotics. Um, That being said, I don't think that outpatient IV antibiotics is necessarily the, the best route for everyone. Um, it is less optimal if you're not stably housed. In the commentary that we wrote in Journal of Addiction Medicine, looking at the literature, there are some proposed criteria for consideration of home-based outpatient antibiotics for people who inject drugs. It includes that the patient is willing to engage in close follow-up, that the patient has safe and stable housing. Even if this patient that we have in this case is not stably housed, maybe they have a family member who's really engaged in their recovery that can house them, that is a responsible adult, and then will continue to help them administer the antibiotics and get them to appointments, et cetera. And I think that that should be included in the conversations that you have with your patients. I think that there's a lot of gray zones, and um, I, I encourage you all to have conversations with your patients. Nathan, the other question you asked is, well, IV antibiotics, like in this day and age, are IV antibiotics really needed after two weeks? And we have data from POET really suggesting that for certain types of pathogens that you can do like a two-week upfront IV antibiotic course and it can be followed with a chaser of PO antibiotics. And and this patient is lucky because they don't have uh, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Um, 
But, you know, the POET trial didn't really include a lot of patients with substance use disorders. That being said, the outcomes for for the more sensitive pathogens was probably fine. Um, So I really think it's dependent on what your ID consultants in your institution are comfortable doing. There are other trials about long-acting lipoglycopeptides and whatnot that can help um, facilitate patients being able to go home earlier. Uh, But... uh, yeah, uh, I think the world is our oyster. Um, the way we provide care to this patient population is very much changing, and and it should change because uh, there's really no reason for these patients to not get standards of care that we provide to every other patient who doesn't have the past medical history stamp of an addiction. Um, I will tout uh, this. Uh, a paper that came out in JAMA Open Network we simulated the cost-effectiveness and long-term clinical outcomes of addiction care and antibiotic therapy strategies for patients with injection drug use-associated endocarditis. And if you model if this is a cost-effective strategy to discharge patients on partial oral antibiotics um, and outpatient IV antibiotics with a combination of addiction care, it is a cost-effective strategy. And so If you're getting a lot of uh, pushback from your hospital systems or your VNAs or your case management saying, like, I don't feel comfortable, this isn't a good idea, this might be uh, a waste of our money, well, there's data that suggests that it might actually be a cost-saving venture for the hospital system, and heck, it'll be a real real benefit for our patients. Uh, Patients who inject drugs are just like every other patient that we take care of. They should be getting the same standard of care and should not be discriminated against um, for getting serious bacterial and fungal infections. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Febrile. We will put links to tons of resources about the topics that we covered in today's episode. Do not forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you will find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.